For those of you guys watching online from coast to coast and across the Fruited Plains, my name's Joe. I'm the pastor here at Lynchburg City Church, and if God puts it on your heart to give to the church, you can do so by going to lynchburgcitychurch.com. With that, please pray uh, with me. Lord, we love you, and uh, we thank you for loving us. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. Lord, right now, um, for Ron, for Havala's dad, I pray a special grace in his life as he's having some medical issues. I, I pray for, um, for wisdom, for those who need wisdom. And uh, I pray that you would you'd help Ron right now. Lord, I think of President Biden. I, I pray that you would uh, help him to make good and wise decisions. I pray that... Um, Lord, for all of our leaders, especially the ones that we don't like, Lord, help us to remember to pray for them. Give them wisdom. Give them wisdom. For our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen, those serving both at home and abroad, we pray, Lord, uh, for their safety, but so much more for their salvation, because most of those guys, they don't know you. They don't love you. They're not walking with you. Lord, for Vladimir Putin, we pray that you would confuse and frustrate his wicked plans. And Lord, that you would save him. You'd save him, God. For the persecuted church. Lord, for the Christians in North Korea. And Afghanistan. In the Sudan, in Eritrea. In Nigeria. We remember those who are in chains as if in chains with them. Please help them. Leah Sherabu being held by Boko Haram in Nigeria. Pastor Yusuf in prison in Iran. Pastor Wang. Pastor John in prison in China. And, and thousands of others, Lord. Help them, God. Help them, Jesus. Help us not to forget them. Forget to pray for them. And Lord, today I, I pray that you'd free us from distraction, from anxious hearts, from just other things going on in our lives that are competing for our attention, and I pray that we would just hear from you. Give us, give us an attention span, Lord, to, to hear from you today. Protect me from error. Help me to say only what you want me to say. If there's something you don't want me to say, don't let me say it. If there's something I need to say that I haven't planned on saying, I pray that you would give me a word. I pray for a fresh filling of the Spirit in my life. I pray that you would aid me as I speak and preach today. We want to hear from you. God, help us to hear from you. Convict our hearts, those of us who need conviction. Encourage our hearts, those of us who need encouragement. Wow us today, God. Wow us today. Through the preaching of your word. May we walk out here having a bigger, more glorious view of you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we're in uh, the Gospel of John. If it's your first time here, you should know we love expository preaching because it's awesome. And it is. And expository preaching is simply where you go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, do the story. Okay? So that's what we do here. That's what we like to do here. And so we're in John's Gospel. This is part seven. It's the seventh sermon I've preached in the Gospel of John. And if you may remember during my introductory remarks, I talked about the synoptic Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke they're typically referred to as the synoptics from the Greek word meaning to see together. And, and so for that reason, you'll see a lot of stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
that are pretty familiar. Like, wait, didn't Matthew tell the same story that I'm just reading in Luke? Yeah, that, that's the reason for that. John's gospel is a little bit more nuanced. It's a little bit different. 90% of the content in John's gospel is exclusive to John's gospel. And the reason I mention that, because we are in John chapter 2 today, the cleansing of the temple by Jesus. The reason I mention that introductory remarks is because in the synoptic gospels, we find today's story, yeah, put that in quotes, today's story, if it is today's story, we find it chronologically at the end of Jesus' life, at the end of those gospels. So there's some confusion at times when we read John's gospel, like, wait, wait, Jesus is cleansing the temple? That, that happens at the end of his life. John's putting it chronologically at the beginning. Oh, uh, why is that? And it could be, because John is reporting the exact same event, but he's just decided to move it out of chronology to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But I'm not sure that that's what's actually happening. In fact, I'm not sure there's any compelling reason to think this. In fact, it seems at face value that this story, the cleansing of the temple by Jesus, is an altogether different event than the one recorded in the synoptics in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that comes at the end of Jesus' life and ministry, which would make this story the first of two temple cleansings. And the reason that I think this, that this is probably true, is Jesus' response is not the same. And the outcome in Jerusalem is not the same. For instance, in Matthew's Gospel, he mentions, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. That's Matthew 21, 13. And yet, John doesn't report either of those two things as a problem here. He doesn't say, it's a house of prayer. And he doesn't say, look, there are robbers. So, what exactly is the problem? And, and what's exactly going on here? We'll look at verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13. Let's get into it. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus, he went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. Jesus obviously does not approve of what's happening, of what, of what he sees. I think that much is clear. But why not? Like, what's the problem? And notice, he doesn't say the people are doing the selling and the exchanging of the currency. Well, they're a bunch of robbers. Like he does in Matthew 21, 13. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say the animals are defective. He doesn't say anything about it being a place of prayer. Though it is. He doesn't say any of that. So we're like, Jesus, what's your problem here? Well, to answer that, we have to look at the very next verse for an explanation. Verse 16. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. That's the issue. They've made his father's house into a bazaar, into a garage sale, in, into a flea market. That's the issue. They've made it into something that it's not supposed to be. It's not supposed to be a house of trade. It's supposed to be about knowing and loving God. As the psalmist would say in Psalm 84.10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I feel like I just heard that. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. That's what it's supposed to be. Or as... The psalmist would also say in Psalm 73, 25, 
whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. But that's not the focus any longer. Now it's about trade. Now it's about money. Trade has replaced knowing and loving and treasuring God. And so what is happening here is not something designed to advance knowing and loving God, but rather the focus is on the love of money. Trade. Like, this is what it would look like, right? Say you're, I don't know, in a city like Lynchburg, okay? And imagine it's, it's going to be hard. Imagine it's graduation weekend. Like, you're in a college town. It's hustle. It's bustle everywhere. It's frustrating traffic, long wait times at the restaurants, tons of people who have all come to celebrate graduation, or in this case, it's Passover. This is prime time. It also meant big business for the Jerusalem-based merchants. And so what the merchants would do is they would set up shop in the temple complex, probably in the court of the Gentiles, and you would have vendors, and they would be selling oxen and sheep and doves, and then you'd have money changers swapping out different currency. And none of this on the surface was necessarily a bad thing. In fact, much of this was actually a very beneficial practice, very, very helpful, because the people would be traveling there for the holiday, and they're providing them a necessary service. For example, if if you're a Jewish male, 20 years of age or older, you had to pay the annual temple tax. Exodus 30, 13 to 14, Matthew 17, 24 to 27. You're going to pay that, but it could only be paid using Jewish or Tyrian coins because of the purity of the silver content. And let's be honest, for most of us, I know there's going to be some hint with someone here that is going to like, you know, raise their hand and be like, not me. But for most of us, we probably don't like, like carrying cash. Like how many of you guys right now are even carrying cash? Right? So basically nobody. You gotta be ready sometimes with those illustrations at the backfire. No, but but I think many of us, right? Many of us, like I don't want to carry cash. Like I'm happy that my wallet has has shrunken, and, and mainly because my wife made me shrink it and get a smaller wallet. Um, but in a similar way, if you're in the first century, that's that's a helpful thing. That's a helpful thing. So so money changers are, are helpful. The exchanging currency you didn't have or that you didn't want to bring on the trip with you during the holiday. Not to mention it would have been really impractical for those traveling from far away to bring animals for making sacrifices and and worshiping during the Passover. Since most of the people who are traveling there for Passover, they they don't live there. They're they're traveling there for this this long weekend, and so it makes it way easier, especially if you can do so without bringing animals with you. Because let's be real. Imagine, like, if you had to come here today, and a lot of you guys are college students, imagine if you had to walk here today. 3.3 3.3 miles. I looked it up. And you had to bring a goat. Okay, you're not just walk. You're going to bring a goat, throwing a donkey and a duck. Okay, I don't know if that the duck's biblically accurate, but whatever, right? You're like, nope, I'm out. Okay? You're like, that's not happening. I have to walk? No way. Some of you are like, the only reason I'm here is because it's 4 p.m. But then again, that might reveal just how much you actually value and, and worship I'll come so long as, well, so long as I don't have to walk, so long as I don't have to bring these things, so long as there's really nothing to inconvenience me. So so here in Jerusalem, here's the problem. The merchants who are selling the animals begin to realize they could charge more. They could charge more for the animals during the festivals. 
And so they started to greatly inflate their prices. And then the money changers, who have a monopoly on the whole system, they started charging these exorbitant fees, some as high as like 13%. And so during the holy days, Jerusalem turns into this theme park. Everything gets marked up 400%. And what are you going to do, right? What are you going to do? Like, if you've ever gone to Disney or, or any theme park, you know you just bite the bullet. You're there. You can't leave, right? I mean, it's not practical to leave. So you pay the price. You bite the bullet. And what had begun as a service to help aid the worshipers had now evolved into this very corrupt trade and money-making money scheme under the rule of the chief priest. The chief priest let this go on unchecked. They knew about it. They didn't do a dang thing about it. And so people are coming to Jerusalem for Passover, to worship, and part of their worship is their giving. Financially to God, in the form of coins, in the form of animals. And what had started as this very much God-first attitude, God-first, God-first, a true heartfelt worship has now been altered to this money-first attitude. So like in our church culture, this happens as well for many of us. Some of us, we don't have a God-first attitude of true heartfelt worship. We have a God-last attitude. We have a, well, I'll come to service because my girlfriend or my wife will get mad at me if I don't come. Or I guess I'll come as long as I don't have anything else going on. We don't give God our best. We give him our leftovers. We give him our breadcrumbs. Today I call this backwards giving. And I use that term because you see the absolute opposite in texts like Numbers 18.12. And I'll just paraphrase it. You go back to Numbers 18.12, and this is an agricultural society, so they'd go and they'd take the crops, they'd take the harvest, and they would just give the absolute best, the first fruits to God. And the amazing thing is, they wouldn't know how much inventory they'd have left. Now, yeah, they did this for a living, so they had some idea, but they wouldn't know the final tally. They just say, we're going to give the best to God. We don't know how much will be left over. That's all right. God will take care of us. God will provide. We're going to give the best to God. We're going to give the best to God. But what happens today? What happens today is this, right? Money comes in, and we've got federal, we've got state taxes, we've got FICA, we've got Social Security, we've got payroll, we've got Medicare. Okay, now we've got rent or mortgage. We've got gas. We've got insurance. We've got groceries, we've got Netflix, we've got Hulu, we've got Amazon Prime, we've got BritBox. Yes, that's a thing. We've got ESPN, we've got Disney Plus, we've got on and on. Then we have discretionary spending. And then, maybe just then, when the offering plate rolls around, we got like 50 cents, there we go. Oh, hang on, that's a piece of gum. Okay, hang on. And we think that somehow God's impressed with us. See, people today, they don't give the way they did in Numbers 18, 12. Like if they give it all, it's junk. This is not the best. This is pretend worship. If people are like, hey, I, uh, I found this like three-legged goat outside Chernobyl. Can, can I give that to God? Yeah? Does that, does that work? Like people aren't concerned about giving God their best, but how to give God their junk and then still call it worship. Like, do, you, do you remember when this all happens, by the way? 
Verse 13, Passover. The feast of Passover, it commemorated Israel's deliverance from bondage out of Egypt when God killed the firstborn of the Egyptians and then he passed over the house of the Israelites. That's Exodus 12. This is Passover. This is when God rescued his people from Pharaoh and Egypt and this corrupt economic and spiritual system that oppressed and enslaved the Hebrews. A system that took their money and took their labor and took their freedom so they couldn't worship God. God then delivers them. He gives them the promised land and then now here in the land, free to worship God, the people decide to go back to Egypt. Worship has been replaced by greed and corruption. And here's the point. We can change nations. We can change political parties. But unless there is a change of heart, nothing of significance ever changes. And when it comes to worship, keep in mind this. Uh, Worship isn't about you. It's about God. And the reason I say that is because many people, it seems, would rather than complain than than actually worship. And you'll hear them say things like, man, I really wasn't feeling that sermon today. Or, Or the music was too loud. The music wasn't loud enough. The band made some mistakes. Did you notice that? The people around me, they weren't singing. The people around me, I didn't like their singing. The people around me, they raised their hands during worship. The people around me didn't raise their hands during worship. Yeah, I really wasn't feeling the worship. Guess what? That's okay, because we're not worshiping you. We're worshiping God. So I don't really care whether you felt it or not. And this is where the problem begins. And it's in people's hearts. And the religious leaders are sanctioning this here in John chapter 2. And it's occurring under the guise of worship, under the pretense to be helpful. But it's not. It's fake. It's phony. It's not real worship, but rather a cover for their greed. And Jesus is not okay with any of this. This is like today, when you uh, find out, you know, some celebrity pastor's flying around on his private jet and then stay in it. Presidential suites, $30,000, $35,000 a night, being paid for by the church or the ministry funds. That's what it's like. And I'm reminded of a story of a young man who went to seminary. Years ago, young man, very excited. He wants to go to seminary. He wants to learn all about God. And he's there. I mean, he's pumped, right? Meets a friend right away the first week of class. They find out they've got a lot of similar classes that semester. And they're about three or four weeks into the semester. And the professor asks a question. He says, how many of you guys in here believe in God? And the guy thinks it's a trick question. Of course, he shoots his hand up. But he notices half the class doesn't. He knows his buddy that he met at the beginning of school doesn't raise his hand. He's getting the vibe that maybe this wasn't a trick question. He's walking out. He pulls his buddy aside. He says, hey, when the professor asked if the class believed in God, I noticed you didn't raise your hand. He said, yeah, I I don't believe in God. He said, well, dude, why are you here at seminary if you don't believe in God? He said, oh, dude, there's a lot of really good money to be made in this God business. That's what Jesus saw. Hypocrisy. Religion uses a front for greed. And so he says, my father is not being worshipped. Money is being worshipped. In my father's house of all places. 
And this cannot and will not be tolerated. And so in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. In other words, when the disciples witnessed what was happening, they connected it immediately with Psalm 69.9, where David the king says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. The temple was designed to be about God. That's the point of the text. Christ will not tolerate any mockery of true worship. Let's read forward. So the Jews said to him, verse 18, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. He does this. And how do you like that? What sign will you give us? Like this all goes down, the first thing they say to him, give us a sign, prove it. That's not a very encouraging response. Like that's not what you want to say to Jesus after this massive rebuke happens. It's a bad idea. And the reason is, is because it reveals your heart. It confirms what's going on in your heart. Because when they ask for a sign, it's not true. They're just deflecting. They're sidestepping. It's not a genuine response. It's just a ploy. They don't need more signs to prove what's true. What they need are new hearts that love what they already know is true, but they're still rejecting. And so Jesus says, right, verse 19, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. Here's what he means. He says, I'm going to die, right? John spells that out for us in, in the concluding verse. But it's clear, this is a reference to his death and his resurrection. And alongside this is this continual rebuke of the desecration of true worship. The literal temple will be destroyed nearly 40 years later, and that happens at the hands of the Romans in 70 AD. And so Jesus is saying here, just like you're going to kill me, you're killing true worship in the temple with your consumerism and your materialism. And I want to be clear on this, because I know someone's probably going to ask me in small groups. I'll just, like, anticipate it here. Um, I'm not against churches that have bookstores or that are providing discounted resources. Now, could they be inappropriate or sinful? Like, I'm sure that's possible. But to draw a parallel from this story, I, I think, would be unfair. And that's because this building, this building, nor, nor any building out there is the temple, nor does it replace the temple. In other words, that's not the point. The point is, this is about true and heartfelt worship. See, what replaces the temple is Jesus. Jesus' followers, they worship in spirit and truth. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us, like right now in this place. And so, when therefore he was raised from the dead, verse 22, his disciples, they remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture that the word that Jesus had spoken Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. They believed. Well, that's great. That's great. That's, what, that's awesome. They believed. But then you, 
You keep reading verses 24 and 25, and we learn something about the type of belief that they had. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, their belief, it seems, was a shallow, superficial, disingenuous one. It was not true saving faith, as John's words indicate. And the same thing happens to Jesus' brothers. For example, if you will pardon the interruption and let me take you to John chapter 7, verse 3 to 5. I think we can throw it on the screen. Look at this. This is going to help us sift out our text today. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing, verse 4, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. His brothers encouraged him to go public. His brothers encouraged him to show off what he can do. And the text tells us that not even his brothers believed in him. In other words... They knew he worked miracles. They believed that. They're excited about that. They wanted to go public to get attention that he deserved. And yet in the middle of the text, it says, yeah, they didn't believe. How can that be? Because answering that question is how we can answer the question here in verses 23 and 25 about the people at Passover who saw the signs and believed. And yet, not really. And the explanation is found in John 5.44. Here's what John 5.44 says. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So how was this type of belief or unbelief possible? Answer, because deep down inside, Jesus knew. Jesus can see what no one else can and that is, his brothers loved the glory and the applause of man. They saw Jesus, the miracle worker, as their chance for personal glory, to be in the limelight, to bump up their popularity. And John makes it very clear that Jesus knows the intention of your heart, including if you believe in a saving way. Isn't that what verses 24 and 25 are saying? Back to John 2, 24 and 25. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. He knows everybody. He knows everything about everybody, which means there are no secrets in your life. You may have succeeded in hiding something all your life from every single person on this earth. You may think you've succeeded in hiding secrets from everybody. But what makes clear from this verse, the person who knows most matters most. And so once again, verse 23 tells us, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. They saw the signs and believed, but like his brothers, that was it. But he knows. Jesus knows what is in the heart of every person. He can see the greed behind the false and fake worship. Just as here, he can see everything. He can see someone who believes in a real saving way versus believing in the sort of way the demons do in James or the good church folks do in Matthew 7, right? 
when Jesus tells those good Christian folks who claim to know him, who claim to believe, away from me, I never knew you. He says that to good Christian church folks. He says that to them. Many who I imagine live below the Mason-Dixon. Away from me, I never knew you. Many people will be very surprised one day, and they will think that they're going to be greeted by Jesus, and they're not. They think that he's their buddy and pal. They think that he knows them well. And he says, I don't know you. He can see when someone believes in a way that is false, in a non-saving way. He knows the true state of every heart, which lead every single one of us to pray with fervency that God would protect us from self-deception. Leading us to think that we're Christians when we're actually not. Leading us to pray against self-deception when it comes to sin in our lives that we ignore, when it comes to phony worship or even phony giving. And so to recap, these folks believe here in 24 and 25, but there's something that they're not believing. Whatever their faith is, Jesus does not approve. And John is so crucial to clarify that not all faith is really faith. Not all faith is really saving faith, which makes these verses and messages like this one from John 2 the most loving thing we could possibly hear. For it's better to have Jesus point this out It's better to have Jesus help us come to terms with it than to discover it on our own when it's too late. Thinking that we're saved, thinking that we're good to go, thinking, well, of course I'm going to heaven, only to hear him say one day, dude, I don't know who you are. And then to be cast into utter darkness, into the depths of hell for eternity. Jesus And I love Jesus. He has a way of seeing through all the garbage and junk in our life that we try to pretend is something more. And so as the team comes today, I want to pray for us. My prayer, God, is that you would protect us from self-deception. Whether it's thinking, perhaps, that we're a Christian when we're when we're not actually, when maybe we've never actually responded biblically to the gospel, that you would protect us from self-deception when it comes to being fake and phony, when it comes to our worship and giving, thinking that we're, we're actually worshiping when we're not worshiping at all. We're just posing, we're pretending. Lord, show us where we're wrong. Show us where we're wrong. And I pray that you would renew in us hearts of true worship. True worship. True worship. Not the worship that says, so long as I don't have anything else going on in my life, then yeah, I'll read my Bible or pray or I'll go to church. Forgive us for that type of garbage. And make us more like your son. We pray this in your name, amen.